to a pleasure podcast for more from our sex podcast collective visit pleasurepodcasts.com thanks for tuning in sluts and scholars is a sex positive shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter while we love to give advice and resources please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars, where we talk smart and fuck smarter. I'm Nicoletta, and I'm a marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And I'm Simone, Nicoletta's friend who tags along sometimes to talk about sex and all kinds of other things. I'm a law student who likes to talk about boning. All right, before we start the episode, we just want to give a little content warning and also some context for this week's podcast. This episode contains topics relating to stalking, intimate partner violence, and murder. As you may have seen in the news, one of our past guests and my friend and colleague, Dr. Amy Harwick, was stalked and murdered by her ex-boyfriend over the weekend. This heartbreakingly all-too-common end result of stalking and predatory behavior that the Carrie Goldberg Law Firm and our guest, Norma Buster, fight so hard against. We recorded this episode a few weeks ago, and I wavered about whether to post it. But Amy also fought tirelessly helping survivors, so I hope that she would want us to put this out there and educate folks about how we can change a broken system that fails to protect so many people. This episode is for you, Amy, and we all miss and love you. And what's so fucked up is what happened to Amy is devastatingly common. According to the CDC, homicide is one of the main causes of death for women under the age of 45, and 55% of those murders are perpetrated by current or former intimate partners. More than half. Women are 15 times more likely to be killed by a man they know than by a male stranger. Wow. This is such a reminder of what we do and why we're here. Yes, a lot of our episodes are about levity and fun and pleasure, but the foundation and the mission of the podcast itself is to broadcast that we have the right to our bodies, our space, and our lives the way we wish to lead them. Thank you for listening. This week, I'm really excited by, with our guest. We are joined by Norma Buster, um, who is an incredible person. She's a sexual privacy advocate based in New York. Um, and she it, it was her own experience with stalking and revenge porn that pushed her to dedicate herself to fighting for victims' rights. Her full-time job is being the client relations manager at Carrie Goldberg's law firm. And uh, <laughs> she's also working on a memoir. Welcome. Thank you so much. That's such a great <laughs> intro. Well, you're such a great person. How else could I do it? <laughs> yeah, we have, I think, did, did we find out about Carrie Goldberg through Amber Heard or did you already know about Carrie? Oh, I have, I don't want to use the term stalking because that would be fully inappropriate. <laughs> but um, I have been, I have been a, a Carrie acolyte since well before she was a major Twitter person. I mean, I just yeah, think she is really important. She's been around for a while, um, back in like the New Yorker, um, that was like, I think in 2016 and, um, back then it was, I think just her plus a couple others. And my story was actually in that, um, and that kind of like pushed things forward to kind of build to where we are today, which, um, we have a, a law firm of, I think 12, 13 of us. 
incredible. So you talked a little bit about, about your story and I know that we would be interested to hear about what happened with you that inspired you to, to go into this field as much as you're comfortable sharing. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm pretty open about it. Have been for a few years now. Um, so basically, back when I was 19 years old, I broke up with my boyfriend of two years. Um, nothing bad happened. I just kind of wanted to be on my own, be single, hook up with other guys, like, you know, all that. <laughs> um, and so I broke up with him, and he really was not happy about that. And I guess he saw us getting married, and I didn't. And so he started making up all of these lies to try to get me to talk to him, um, like things about his family dying and like sicknesses and threatening suicide and all that. And so like the severity of the threats just kept getting worse. You know, once I figured out that his family wasn't dying, then he had to try something else, right? Um, so I broke up with him. It was November of 2014. And by... I would say like end of the year. So by the end of December, he started threatening me with my pictures. And so I had sent him like naked pictures throughout the relationship. We were together for two years. Um, and I had asked him to delete them when we broke up. And he kind of gave me a little bit of a hard time about it, which kind of struck me as like, hmm, that's odd. Like, why do you still want these pictures, right? Um, so, yeah, eventually, to kind of bring it to the main point, in February of 2015, at the end, um, I hadn't talked to him. You know, things had, like, kind of cooled down. I had gotten a temporary restraining order. Then I lost that one in court. And so it, it was, like, a whole mess. And I was dealing with it without a lawyer, so I really didn't know what I was doing, you know. Um, and so February, one day I just get a text from someone saying like, hey, it's, it's um, whatever his name was, from Pornhub. And I was like, all right, I know exactly what this is. And basically I, I did some digging and my ex had made a profile on Pornhub with my full name, my address, my phone number, um, my pictures, saying like you know if you want like I think something like I suck dick like here take appointments or whatever like here's my phone number so I was getting a text message from someone expecting that like I was giving blowjobs and I wasn't <laughs> but it brought me to the page and I was able to get it down because Pornhub actually had a pretty quick response to um, like the online web submission to report it. I'm just curious about what that reporting submission was like. Yeah, so once I found the profile, the first thing that I did was go to the police station. Um, I had been there back at the end, I think early January, um, so like two months before I'd been there saying my ex is threatening to put my pictures out there. And at the time, New Jersey was one of the few states with a law that criminalized um, non-consensual pornography. So sharing someone's nudes without their consent. You could call it revenge porn too. Um, that term in itself can get a little bit... Um, it's not always accurate because it's not always out of revenge. Sometimes people say, well, I just thought it was funny. Like, 
I just wanted to share this picture I saw or like sharing a celebrity's like leaked photo that's not necessarily out of revenge even though it's still a violation so you call it non-consensual yeah and even that there are a few terms people debate. I mean, some people call it image-based sexual abuse. Um, I use NCP. Um, I also use revenge porn. In my case, I would call it revenge porn. Mm. Um, but some people don't like to use the word pornography in there either because it's really not meant to be porn. It's meant to be something private, and porn is public right so I went to police I had been there before they really didn't know what to do they were just like well you know we could call them if you want I'm like I just need to get these pictures down I'm like they were put up yesterday like I need to get them down before they go viral right and they didn't know what to do so I did like some searching like the police officer was doing some searching I was doing some searching and finally found a phone number for Pornhub then they directed me to an online um like takedown form and so I said like these are my photos I did not consent to these being posted online please remove them immediately and I think I said like keep the information of the account that that made them um, and so they took it down within, I think, 30 minutes or something like that. Wow. That is prompt. Yeah. Isn't yeah. that fucked up, though, that they, ha- they have such a system in place that it can happen so quickly? Right. Right. Because it's so easy to actually do it. It takes two seconds to make, to an, account. make an account and upload a photo, you know, and that's it. How I, do you think you knew or had the... I don't want to say the confidence, but, you know, a lot of people might not say anything or might be afraid or not know what to do. Like, how did you even know to take some of those first steps? Um, I think after I broke up with him, everything that he was doing, he was really pulling a lot of people in my life into it. So, for example, the night I broke up with him, he had a friend like set up like a little intervention to try to get me to like keep the relationship going after I said I didn't want to be in it um he talked to my parents made them think I was like going out and being this wild party girl which maybe I was a little bit but not on to the level (laughs) that he made it sound um but he was trying to say, like, I'm a good influence without me. She's doing... Yeah, yeah, things. like, look at look at her. Like, look at all these things she's doing. She's going out. Like, um, on New Year's Eve, he texted my mom. It was, five, like, 5 in the morning by that time I had gotten home. He texted my mom. He's like, oh, Norma's, Norma's out with a guy right now. And she's like, she's in bed right now, actually. Master manipulator. So... In the beginning, he was able to turn a lot of people kind of against me and and think that I was just acting out. Um, But over time, people started to see the craziness. And, um, you know, they started to see, like, the fact that he was telling lies about, like, his mom dying, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're like, all right, we see that there's something going on. And then once he started with the pictures with that thread I was like okay I have to stop this before it gets out there and I just needed to do everything I could not to let this blow up or not to let it go viral Mm. I'm just wondering where 
I mean, obviously it comes from like belief and ownership over our bodies, but this is like a whole other abstract thing. And I really want um, our listeners to like hear specifically like how, how like this affected you and like you processed and, and -hmm. all of that and what, what subsequently happened. Yeah. um, So I, I think I need to tell a little bit about kind of my journey to where I am today working for for Carrie Goldberg um, because that's a big part of that. Um, basically, after the the photos and everything, so they put me on the phone with our town judge and said, we're going to try to get you a temporary restraining order. Um, this would be my second time. I heard it's really difficult to get restraining orders, is it? Kind of. So... Yeah, so what happened was, like, they put me on the phone with her, and I told her what happened. You know, my ex-boyfriend had been threatening this. He put my photos up. She was like, well, that's why you don't send pictures like that. You know, if you send it to one person, it's like asking for it to be put on a billboard. Literally (laughs) asking, like, she used the words asking for it. Yeah, literally told was i was asking for it this was 2015 so yeah so i was denied a temporary restraining order that day um and then my mom just was doing research digging and digging and trying to find resources and um i was really really discouraged at that point because i thought you know what police said they can't do anything like they don't believe me even though i said he's the only one who had those pictures and he was clearly threatening me for months you know but it was blaming you for even taking them right well you shouldn't have taken them right so but sorry just one yeah, second so on then, the topic of uh, TR, uh temporary uh, restraining orders um you said you lost the first one a, mm-hmm. like based on, like how what was that about yeah so the first time um so it was like a couple months into like when his harassment and like stalking was starting and, and he was threatening with the pictures um i went to the police station and we showed them he was making a lot of threats on twitter so he wasn't naming me, but saying a lot of things like, oh, I'm going to fuck up your life so bad. You wish you never fucked with me. You know, um, you'll be lucky to work at McDonald's after this. Things, things like that. Um, and so I, I knew what was coming, you know. And I'd gone to the police for help. And they, they put me on the phone with that judge. And, like, the first time that I spoke with her, she was really just... Um, very discouraging. She's like, I'll give it, you know, I'll give you the restraining order, but you know, I don't know. Basically she was just like, I don't really know how this is going to help you. Um, and then I didn't know what to expect next. They just said, you'll get something in the mail. Um, I got a letter in the mail with a court date. Now I didn't show up with a lawyer. I had printouts of like text messages from him, threatening text messages. He showed up with a lawyer and they just, they completely made it look like I was the one who was, who was like obsessed in some way. Um, like the questions that he would ask me, he would be like, isn't it true that you clicked on his SoundCloud 27 times in two days? And I was like, no, but you can't show that you're angry or like annoyed that they're asking that question. Cause it's complete bullshit. 
you just have to say no. But I, it was just, it completely tripped me up. So the second time, you know, I was denied it at the precinct. Um, this was again at the end of February now of 2015, my mom found Carrie Goldberg and she was like, you have to meet with her. You know, she went through something like this too. She's young. You'll like her. And again, I was like, I I don't really see a point, (laughs) you know, like their police already told me no. Um, but I met with her and she actually came with me to the police station. They turned her away too being told that they were told not to prosecute under the New Jersey revenge porn law. Yeah. Like a law that exists that you just don't use. Yeah. Because prosecutors have some prosecutorial um, discretion. Mm -hmm. So they were just deciding not to. But like typically they choose not to prosecute like anti-fornication laws, like laws that have been on the books since like the 1800s. But this right. is like a new law that they were like, meh, we're good. Yeah, it's a new law. And <laughs> I think it, it's a big excuse that um, law enforcement um, and just just in general, like institutions in power um, to say that, like, they have to, like, catch up, you know, like there's so much technology and like they haven't caught up yet. And they like they do need training. But come on, like we have laws for this. It's like, I'm telling you, I'm showing you, you have everything you need to like start the investigation. Going back to restraining order. If someone does get that, speaking of um, things that are behind, how does that work for like online harassment? Because maybe restraining, they can't like stay within a certain amount of like feet of you. But what about online communications or threats? Yeah. So I mean, and like, how do they even I don't know, check if that's happening. Right. So I don't want to speak generally just because I think the the terms of an order of protection or restraining order um, might be different depending on the state and like the actual petition that's filed and like the agreement and all that. Um, I can say for myself, um, I ended up going into family court in my county to get my restraining order and then I showed up with a lawyer. Um, and basically he can't, contact me online he can't talk about me he can't get other people to talk about me or to talk to me for him um i think on my restraining order it says he can't contact my family um he can't show up at my job my work my gym yeah like even when you have it like is it respected and when it's not respected like what are the recourses yeah so He's still on probation for what he did because they also ended up, like, Carrie found um, a prosecutor who investigated my case. They were able to link everything back to his computer. He got charged with invasion of privacy on probation for five years. So he's still on probation. um, And I have a permanent restraining order against him. So if he contacts me ever again in my life, um, I would report that. And he's violating a restraining order and he could get arrested. Um, if he does that while he's on probation, I think the, um, consequences would probably be a lot more severe. Um, but yeah, it kind of depends on also the precinct, like are police going to actually go after if you report a violation of a restraining order, which sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But it sounds like Carrie really like gave you hope that there was something that you could do about this. Um, 
in court and in the proceedings after, did they use any like slut shaming tactics during those proceedings? Like again That's, with this blaming of like, well, yeah. you shouldn't have taken these. Um, you shouldn't have dated him. Like whatever else they could mm-hmm. say. Yeah, I, I would say it was better after that, um, especially because I felt like I, you know, I went to all these court appearances, even if I didn't have to show up because I just wanted him to have to face me. Mm. And I always showed up with people. Um, so I always had either like a friend or two friends or like one of my parents with me. Um, How was it to see him like face to face? It's weird. It's weird because I never really got to confront him face to face after all that happened. You know, once he put my pictures out there, it was like, all right, they're out there. He could just put them on Twitter or Facebook and like then I'm really fucked, Mm -hmm. you know. I was able to get it contained. My pictures are not out there. Like, you can't find them. <laughs> but even the fact that you think you could be fucked because they're out there just, I think, highlights the issue in our in our country and our system that, like, even if this happened to you, I mean, even if it was consensual, there's slut-shaming that would happen where your maybe your job and other things could be at risk. But even in a non-consensual situation that you would still be blamed and could potentially, like, lose job opportunities or be seen in a certain light. Yeah, and we see that happen all the time. Um, one thing I know you had asked about, like any other like slut shaming in the court um, proceedings, and I wouldn't say that, but one comment from the judge, and I was actually treated really well in court that day. Um, I, you know, read my sentencing statement. Um, this was on sentencing oh. day, and the judge said something like, you know, for someone to do this, just basically expressing his disgust. Um, but he was like, as as someone with a daughter, you know, I, I'm appalled. And it was like, okay, like, thank you for acknowledging that he did something disgusting. But at the same time, like, does it have to be because you have a daughter? Can't it just be because I'm a human being and he violated me in this way? Like, mm-hmm. he exposed me without my consent? Mm-hmm. Why do you think it takes someone like having a daughter, quote unquote, to be able to empathize and understand? I don't think they've ever been forced to. Yeah. You know, some some people, especially like people in pri- a position of privilege and power, white straight men um in positions of power, they're not always pushed to like look at the way another person's life can be destroyed mm-hmm. within seconds. And- you know, unless they they think about like someone in their life and like imagine it happening to them. Yeah. And I f- maybe Nicoletta you can speak um, more to this, but I feel like there's been a lot of like research done on how people change their point of view when they know somebody who could be affected by it. Like I remember when they when people were canvassing um, like against Prop 8 or against like general like anti-gay, anti-queer legislation, uh, people who are initially against it, if like you as a queer person go and do the canvassing and like talk to them about how it personally affects you, it actually does change people's perspectives. At least that's what I remember about the study, but it was a few years ago, so maybe it's been discounted. I can't, sp- I can't speak to the, sp- to the specifics, but uh, <laughs> if you've read the article, feel free to be scholarly and look it up and send it our way. <laughs> Watch this Full be like a totally bogus article, and it was like, um, that research has been overturned, Simone. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it sounds right. 
Well, that's really interesting. And, and actually, that does remind me of conversations I've had with friends. You know, I, I have a lot of friends with many different viewpoints and sometimes ones that I don't agree with and I find really problematic. But they're still my friends and I want to listen and, mm. and figure out, like, where where is the disconnect here? Like, what is it that makes you feel that way? It sounds like your mom was really supportive, though. Yeah. Was she always, like, on your side? Yeah, my mom is definitely, like, a mama bear. <laughs> but, she, like, just, was she, you know, able to support you and not, and not be shaming about it? It sounds like she was, like, your, a big advocate for you. Yeah. Um, both of my parents would do anything to protect me. Um, I don't think that they were happy mm. that I had gotten into this situation. Um, Did they express and that to you? Yeah, it was, you know, not immediately. It, immediately it was like, okay, let's handle this. Like, we're going to just take care of this. Um, and uh, my parents love me. They support me no matter what. But even when I started to, to even share my story publicly, um, they kind of asked, like, are you sure you want to do that? You know, are you sure you want people to know about this? And I'm like, what? To know that I, like, sent naked pictures to my boyfriend? <laughs> that, like, I was violated? Mm. And so it, it's been kind of um, a journey with them to get them to accept. Like, even for, they dropped me off here. And I told them, like, I'm, I'm talking about what I went through. I t- I'm talking about the work I do. And, and they're at a point where, like, I think they're more accepting and they, they ask questions and they want to know more. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm sharing my story a lot. I, I'm working on a memoir, um, talking about what I've been through and, and how I got here. And so it's, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, if you don't know someone who's been through it, it can be really difficult, but I've had to just, let it go and like let them just deal with it on their own and say like okay this is what I'm doing you guys will adjust eventually do you have recommendations on like how to tell someone this is happening to you because I know it sounds like your parents are like very supportive and I don't know if you experience like fear or anxiety about telling them but I guess based on your own personal experience and perhaps those of of your clients and those you support like how because it's, yeah. it's like coupled with this embarrassment. Like, they're, like the fact that a judge was like, the judge told you that you did something wrong. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I never in a million years would have thought that I would be telling my parents that my ex-boyfriend's threatening to put my naked pictures on the internet. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, my parents are not as religious as as they were back then, but like I was always taught you wait till you're married to have sex. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Yeah. So once I started dating my ex and like staying over his place on the weekends, I think they kind of knew that was out the door. (laughs) Um, So it was like an awkward conversation to tell them about what was happening. But at the same time I was like desperate. Um, But I, I would definitely say to others because when people contact our firm and I do speak with victims, especially a lot of underage victims Mm. who need to tell an adult, um, it's, it can be very, it's very scary to deal with this on your own. 
And the idea of telling a parent can be even scarier. But what happens if you don't? Right. And I think it's so important to think about how bad a situation can get if, if you don't maybe take that scary step and tell someone in your life, um, a parent, or if you can't tell your parent, if, if you think that's going to make the situation worse, because there are people in situations where if they tell their parent, they're kicked out of their home. So can people be legally represented, for example, by the Goldberg firm um, if they don't have, if they're underage and they don't have a parent? Um, in that situation, I would talk to Carrie and we would figure out how to get them the help they need. Um, when it comes to especially an underage victim, like we need to make sure that, that they're getting help no matter what. Mm -hmm. So what kinds of other cases um, does Carrie and your firm see? Yeah, so we deal with a lot of cases like mine um, and other ones. Uh, we deal with a lot of sexual assault cases, um, stalking, revenge porn. A lot of these are basically we represent victims who are under attack. And a lot of these, um, in a lot of these cases, tech is weaponized. So that's why when we talk about like stalking or harassment, we don't like to separate cyber stalking or cyber harassment. We like to just say stalking and harassment because nowadays it exists in the cyber realm, you know. Mm -hmm. And and we know that the effects of an online crime still are offline right we still feel those um whether it's the emotional repercussions or the financial professional reputational and so on is there like a line when something goes i guess from just like online trolling or bullying to like something that would be an offense that like could be a legal thing um I, yeah i think so but it does get a little bit tricky with like the way that the laws work, you know, um, ultimately like my role at the firm, I'm not a lawyer. So I meet with people before they become clients and they talk to me about, about what they're going through. And, um, basically I spent an hour doing a case evaluation with them and, and figuring out, is this actually a problem that we can help with? You know, what, what is the end game here? Like, what do you need do we think we can help you? Hey, slutty scholars. I know in this episode, we're talking a lot about non-consensual exposure, and it can be a little bit heavy, but I want to take a pause on the heavier parts of this episode with a little break and some discount codes from our sponsors, Uber Lube and My Girl Fund. Remember, the more you support our advertisers, the more we can keep doing this podcast and having important conversations like this one. You can join My Girl Fund for free, and for a limited time, you can become a lifetime premium member for less than $5 when you visit mygirlfund.com slash S&S. My Girl Fund allows its female members to control their exposure. They connect with who they want to connect with, control how they want to interact, and decide what they charge for those interactions. It's a safe, private, and discreet adult community. On mygirlfund.com, you can meet message, share photos and videos consensually, and cam with women in private. It's a great community of sexy, friendly folks to connect with that are relatable and want to hang out and connect with you on an erotically intimate level. There are no set prices for these interactions and content, so it's all negotiated one-on-one. -on -one. 
Again, you can join my girl fund for free and for a limited time, you can become a lifetime premium member for less than five bucks when you visit mygirlfund.com slash S and S. Again, you can get discounted credits and bonus interaction features for life when you go to mygirlfund.com slash S and S. And while you're at it, buy some lube from one of my personal faves, Uber Lube. Uberlube is offering our listeners a special 10% off and free shipping when you use my code S&S at uberlube.com. That's 10% off and free shipping. Just use S-A-N-D-S at uberlube.com, U-B-E-R-L-U-B-E.com. If you don't know about Uberlube, it's a luxurious, high-grade silicone lubricant made from simple, body-friendly ingredients. It's just silicone with a little bit of vitamin E for extra moisture. A lot of times people don't even like to wash it off because they like the way it feels on their skin. I personally use it in my hair for the little frizzies that I get, but you can also use it for chafing, massage, and more. I always have a bottle on my nightstand, one in the shower, and a little vial in my purse so that I have it everywhere I need because remember, lube is your best friend. And this friend has no parabens, preservatives, and no petrochemicals. And it doesn't stain your clothes or your bedding. So just use code S&S at uberlube.com. That's 10% off and free shipping when you use code S-A-N-D-S at U-B-E-R-L-U-B-E.com. Now back to the episode. I think it's awesome that they have someone to talk to who's been through the experience, who can be compassionate and empathetic. And I wonder, like, how were you able to get to a place where you could help others with this and, like, heal from your own potential trauma from this situation? Yeah. um, Well, after this happened to me, it... I used to say it lit a fire. Now I say it just, like, woke me up to this fire inside of me. (laughs) Um, And I just realized... I need to dedicate my life to changing the world in this way. Like, I just need to, like, dedicate my life to this. You know, I found it. Um, I, after college, and I had studied um, advertising, marketing, communications um, in the city. And after college, I spent six months in Spain. I was teaching English. Um, I was going to stay there for a year, and then Carrie reached out to me. We had been, like, keeping in touch, and she had a a position available. And so immediately I was like, I have to apply. (laughs) Like, I will leave Spain for this job. This is just perfect. Um, So I did, and then, you know, I ended up coming back to New York, got this job started, and, and it was really great, and I felt like I was so ready to talk to victims, Um, and then over time, like I just started to notice my anxiety after work, not even at work. Like when I was at work, I could be good, focus on everyone else around me. But then like the second I didn't have anything to do, it was like, I'm going to go crazy. Mm. You know, the anxiety was horrible. Um, so I ended up starting to see a therapist, Um, And if you live in New York at the new school, they have like a graduate program um, where you can pay, I think it's 20 to 55 bucks for for a 20 week program. Wow. So I I tell everybody that I tell clients that like people should really know about this because it's um, they're graduate students, but they're supervised. So they they play video and and it's great. It just really helped me um, kind of get started with processing all of the emotions that I had put off for so long because after it happened to me, 
I was like, okay, okay, this guy tried to ruin my life, and now I'm just going to take life into my own hands. I'm going to travel the world. I'm going to do this work. I'm, you know, I'm doing all these great things, and and people around me were like, you know, you moved past this. Like you're doing so great. And then, like inside, I was like starting to get worse and worse and worse. You know, and I would go through these like periods of anxiety where like it was just for a few weeks at a time then I would feel better for a while and then I would like go through another period of anxiety um I started having like flashbacks and I didn't know that they were flashbacks you know I um like I would just have random memories and like could feel like certain sensations of like from what from when I had been with him um, I was started having nightmares so even though I was doing really great at my job and excelling I was like crumbling underneath. <laughs> um, so I ended up seeing a psychiatrist. She's like, yeah, you have untreated PTSD. Like mm. you need to actually deal with this. Um, so that was really important for me to do to get on SSRIs, Monzoloff now. And that in itself was like a huge step for me because I never thought that I would be on medication. And I have a lot of people in my life with um, depression and other mental health issues, but it wasn't me. You know, I, I was always like the one who didn't need it. Mm-hmm. But I realized I was like, you know what? I was put through this really horrible situation that completely like changed everything for me. And now I need a little help <laughs> to get my back, myself back to normal so that I can do this work. And actually, when I met the psychiatrist, within five minutes of her meeting me, so I, I told her a little bit about myself, about the work that I do and why I'm there. And she said, well, you shouldn't be doing this, this kind of work. You know, if, if you're healing, she's like, you have, you have PTSD. Like, you need to find another area of law. And I was like, if victims or survivors didn't, like, go into this line of work then nothing would ever change Mm -hmm. and because that's there's two things i want to know i want to talk about the language of victim versus survivor but i also just want to um so so many people who work at your firm are survivors like yeah a lot of you have that i mean i don't know how many but carrie you um annie sifula am i pronouncing her name right sifula yeah annie sifula yeah and i just like and we're like building an army yeah you're you're building an army but at the same time like to all of you be surrounded by this talk constantly obviously takes a toll but I'm assuming there's also Mm -hmm. benefits to somebody understanding and so instead of just being a constant reminder you're like in this together yeah absolutely and the relationships between all of us at work it's just, I was actually talking to Harry about this a few days ago. What a great team we have. You know, it, it can be a little bit isolating when you're constantly, you know, dealing with difficult work, right? You know, we're talking to victims of, of really traumatic things, and a lot of us have been through really traumatic things. And sometimes it's like, we only have each other who really get it because we're the only ones dealing with it. Um, 
yeah, it's, um, it, it's, it's wonderful to have e even just like talking to, like, if I have a conversation with friends and I feel like maybe like outside of work, um, and I feel like they don't understand my perspective because of what I deal with every single day. Um, you know, I was talking to my friends about uh, nude photos. I'll give this example. Um, do you guys know like the, the baby nude photo mm -mm. scandal? So he's a rapper. Okay. And um, I forgot who else. I think it was ASAP Rocky. They had some like nude photo leaks and my friends were talking about it. And like my girlfriends were like passing it around. And I was just like, wait, I'm like, am I really here right now? <laughs> And they know what you've yeah, done. Yeah, yeah. How did you and handle that? I was like, my friend tried to show me. I was like, I don't want to see that. And I think I just like walked out of the room. Like I couldn't even deal with it. And I talked to my friend after and I was like, I don't think you would be doing that if it was a woman's photo or a woman's sex tape. What do you and think has been the difference between cases when there is a gender yeah, like, what's the difference between, like, male, female, revenge porn, or non-consensual photographs? Yeah, so, everyone can get affected. Um, I think the effects for women can be greater, just because of the way that society treats women as sexual beings. You know, you, you can't put your sexuality out there, even if it wasn't without your consent. Whereas a guy... Um, maybe it wouldn't necessarily make him lose a job opportunity, although it could, depending on what industry he works in. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just think generally the stigma and like the repercussions for women tend to be greater. Mm -hmm. However, um, it's still a violation, and it's still just as bad when you do it to a man as when you do it to a woman. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I've noticed within you know, my own friends and just people I know in general that they don't necessarily think about it in the same way. So after I did talk to my friend about that and I was like, this is, I have a real problem with that. I'm like, I would hope that you wouldn't do, do that in, not just in front of me, but at all. Mm -hmm. um, and it was something I could talk to my coworkers about and they really understood. But, you know, I talked to my friends and they got it after I talked about it. And they're like, I, didn't think about it. They had to admit, they're like, I fucked up. Like, I, I didn't think about it in that way. Yeah. Something that we talk a lot about on the podcast, at least in reference to sex workers, is just people feeling like if they if they see you out there in media that they have, like, access to you. Mm -hmm. So, like, if you're a porn performer and people have seen you in porn, that when they meet you, they think, oh, it's okay if I just grab your ass or do this right. stuff. And so how have cases been different for people who are celebrities or in the public mm -hmm. eye versus, like, day-to-day -day folks? Yeah, so I think there is, like, that one thing that holds it all in common that, like, it's a violation for all of us, right? But for the high-profile people, it's... I think a lot of people say the same thing they said to you, like, oh, well, you wanted to be famous, so you asked for it. Like, right. You know, more privacy for you. Right, right. Yeah, and even dealing with, you know, there's always trolls out there and stuff, and it's, like, the more public you are, <laughs> the, you know. But I think when it comes to, like, high-profile people, of course the, the pressure can be, like, a hundred times greater in some ways. Um, Katie Hill is our client. Um, 
if you guys have, have read about her, she's a congresswoman, um, you can read about her story. Um, but that's just an example of like so many eyes watching you, you know, from all over the country, potentially all over the world. Um, and yeah, people tend to think like it's, it's really not a big deal because they're a celebrity and they're never going to know that I'm looking at this picture. Mm. You know, it's like for, for people to like pass around nudes in your home, like, yeah, that person's never going to know that you saw their naked picture, but like, they still don't recognize, I think, um, just how wrong the actual act of like viewing that is well, and the actual act of passing it around we talk about making it normal like <laughs> nude photo scandals but they're not scandals is it amber heard who told us this that it's like it's not a fucking scandal it's a crime right and like it, it, like in the words we use like there they did nothing scandalous there is not a scandalous thing going on this is a crime and you are enjoying the fruits of it yeah or not even exactly. enjoying just like not condemning even just not even condemning I think is problematic I think that there is a responsibility to and I think it's I think it's obviously different if you're someone who's personally experienced it but I think if you are in a situation where people are consuming like non-consensually public photos that are private like I think we as a society like have an obligation to say hey this is fucked up this is like morally wrong and it's illegal and this is a crime and not the onus yeah. is not on, I mean, I think it's really interesting that you were like, if victims or survivors weren't doing this work, nothing would get done. And that really pisses me off just hearing that. So I'm just yeah. thinking about as someone who has not been a victim of this, like the responsibility on me is to make it clear how fucked up and destructive and like criminal this is. How do you feel about the words victim and survivor or victim versus survivor? Um... To be honest, like I don't really have too much of a problem with the word victim. Um, I, the way I see it, I was the victim of a crime. Um, I am a survivor. It's I, I don't mind saying like I was a victim. I'm not a victim currently. I, I think that's where it kind of um, can get a little murky. It's like I was a victim, but that doesn't make me a victim for the rest of my life. Um, and I, I think that's why this kind of brings me to um, something I've been like doing a lot of research on and like doing a little writing about um, the porn industry. You know, um, if you look at like the historical um, backlash to the porn industry, you know, Andrea Dworkin and, and um, Catherine McKinnon, all these radical feminists <laughs> um, talking about um, you know, women being like victims to porn and, and porn inherently being rape and sex between men and women is, is inherently, um, you know, it, it uh, I, I don't know exactly what they say, but don't they say all sex is rape? It's not good. Like you I, I think they might say that sensual sex under like patriarchy because of the power of the patriarchy. Oh, interesting. It, it might be. And, and that's what I'm not sure about, but, um, the point is that, like, it, it just paints women as victims, you know, or, or anyone who's not a man as, as a victim, and that I, I have a real problem with. I try to, at least for clients of mine, I try to match whatever words they use. Yeah. Because I think it can be doubly, I guess, victimizing or taking the power away from someone to say, for me to tell them, 
no, this is how you should name yourself or like, this is what you should call yourself. And so I, I try to check in with clients and say like, what do you prefer to be called? Do you align with any of Mm -hmm. these words or names or titles or no title at all? Because yeah, it'd be like me saying, well, no, you should call yourself a victim. Like (laughs) when you ask that question though, what's, what sort of, uh, I would imagine that would maybe like bring up some stuff or like what sort of processing do people typically do after you ask them that question like do they immediately know how they identify or are they like oh I've never thought about that before I think some some do and, and some don't um, but it's usually not like a one-time question I think it's it is an evolving one based on where someone generally seems to be at like in their healing process um, and there may be people who say I, I never felt you know victimized um, I, I think also we give a lot of weight to those words and um, I think social media adds a lot to it because, like, I don't know, before, like, a few years ago, like, I wouldn't have really thought about the difference between a victim and survivor. Um, but now they don't exist but, in, a, in a, well, they don't exist in a vacuum. Right, yeah, so you kind of have to think about it now. Um, but, yeah, I think it's an interesting conversation to have we did kind of touch on the effects on men um, and that it can also happen to them. But I would love if you could talk a little bit about the Herrick Grinder case, because I feel yeah. like we don't really talk about how like this, like how men can be victims of stalking and like really, really fucked up shit. Um, and mm-hmm. so I think that would be a, a good thing to hear about. Also like how fucked up Grinder is as a company. Urgh. Yes. <laughs> would love to talk I'm about this. <laughs> oh my god, yes. I was just tweeting about now, this too. People this who don't know out. what is the arbitration clause. Oh Norm, I'm sure you can explain it better than I can. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um so basically uh Grindr just released its new terms of service, I think um at the end of twenty nineteen, um, stating that if you have a an issue with grinder and and i'm like paraphrasing um but um i think you have to it's a forced arbitration clause so you have to go into arbitration with grinder so you can't sue grinder right if they cause you harm arbitration you is like settle private, it private court where people can like right. pick their judges and like it's secret and like it can be secret and it's just yeah it means you don't get to have your day in court if someone like does something exactly and and that's really that's really what our our firm is is fighting for and you know we i said it's a victim's rights law firm we're fighting for the rights of individuals as people to hold more powerful institutions accountable for when they harm us um and that's a perfect example with with the herrick v grinder case um so I'll tell this story. So it's our client, Matthew. Um, He had broken up with his boyfriend, and then his boyfriend started impersonating Matthew on Grindr to get men to come to Matthew's home and his work. And I think between five and six weeks or so, about 1,100 men showed up. Um, and he included in the profile that he had a rape fantasy and that if he said that it wasn't him, that that's just part of the act to keep going. So Matthew had to put up signs on his doors, you know, it, thankfully nothing, you know, he didn't get assaulted, but he, he could have, um, 
So Matthew reported it to Grinder like, and they would like show up at his work too, right? Right, right. They showed up at his home and his work. Eleven hundred men. Wow. Um. So of course, police were were slow to act. Um. (laughs) So he reported it to Grinder. I think about fifty times, and the profiles would come down, but then just come back up. I believe that's the way it went. So basically, we sued Grinder because they were the only ones with the ability to actually do something about the offender. Um, they were the ones who could stop this guy. They could block his device like many other apps do, right? Um, so we sued them, and they said that they didn't have to do anything about it because of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Um and that is a law that basically has, it's been interpreted to give complete immunity to internet service providers, so that's websites, apps, social media, whatever, um, for third-party content. So what they're saying is that Grindr isn't liable for what Matthew's ex did on their app. That each individual person is liable. Right even though they are the ones with the power to Stop actually it. do something about it. And these tech companies all profit off of engagement. It doesn't matter if it's good or bad engagement. Do most of your clients want to come out publicly or it's just that it's like already public and it happens? Cause it seems like you can talk freely about, you know, some of these big cases. It depends. Yeah. Um, some clients, there are a lot of clients that we have that you would never know about because they want it to be they want it private. to be private yeah um and most of the people that we work with are dealing with some kind of privacy violation so sometimes we're trying to contain it and not let it blow up sometimes it's not their choice sometimes they say i want to be public about this because they see that it can make a real change and matthew in his case, the strength and bravery that it shows to put himself out there and and be the guy who sued Grinder, you know that that in itself, it's a lot of survivors. Um, yeah, have, if that doesn't go through with Grinder, can he sue? Like, the what's the status? Him? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you wouldn't necessarily want to sue the ex-boyfriend. Um, I don't know the specifics on him, but when it comes to suing someone, like if they don't have Assets. money yeah. to pay you, like you're not you're going to end up spending more money on legal fees. Yeah. It's like ultimately we weren't trying to get money out of this, right? Like all he was doing was saying like I need to be left alone, and Grinder has the ability to do it, and I need them to stop them to stop this guy and they're not doing it. Um, you don't want to be in court with your stalker. You just want to like handle it as quickly as possible. Um, I, I think they might have gone with like criminal charges for him. Um, the Grinder case, the current status, um, it was, so we lost in court and then appealed and then lost in court and then appealed and then lost. Um, and we were trying to see if we could get it heard in the Supreme Court, but they declined. Um, so you mentioned Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And on Sluts and Scholars, we've talked a lot about FOSTA-SESTA. And mm-hmm. it's extraordinarily negative reperco- repercussions, repercussions on sex workers. 
Um, and obviously the intent of the law is to, you know, prevent sex trafficking. And what it does is instead of, uh, that's the ostensible intent. Um, but because what you, what you mentioned before, and I know you're not a lawyer, and if, if you don't have an answer to this, it's totally fine. But so because like Section 230 does not hold websites and apps responsible for third-party content, that is why Grindr was allowed to step away. Um, and that is also why websites like Backpages and Backpage and Craigslist were allowed to not take responsibility or not, not to not take responsibility, but to not be legally liable for what other people posted. And now because of FOSTA-SESTA, um, specific things related to like sex stuff, websites can now be held liable, which is presumably a good thing in victims' mm -hmm. rights and stalking and revenge and non-consensual porn. But do you have... Like, do you think there is a, but it's also been like, it's also been the source of like death of sex workers, right? Like literal and figurative, like people like sex workers have started to have to work on the street and, and just, there's no way to like, uh, vet clients. And so like, do you think there is like a legal medium or like how, how would you address that? And yeah, it's, it's a really, it's, it's a little bit of a difficult one, um, because of course we can't ignore the negative impact that this has had on sex workers. Um, that law in itself, like I don't agree with the conflation of sex work with sex trafficking. And I think that in itself is, is like one of the main roots of the problem. Um, I think that we, it's a law that was designed to target an already marginalized group. Um, and ultimately, the reason why you know we say we want to get rid of Section 230 is because the way it is right now and the way the internet has been um, kind of constructed and planned out, you know, the guys who, who were in the beginning of the internet, they designed it this way. Mm. Um, and it's not benefiting marginalized groups and i understand that like that's what helps maybe sex workers um do their job safer online but like generally the way that the internet works right now it's it's hurting marginalized groups which which also you know? sex workers are as well i've heard both because i think the internet is also a place where maybe marginalized people can connect with other yeah. people from their community, sort of anonymous. I mean, I guess nothing on the internet is anonymous, but anonymously enough. Um, but at the same time, it sounds like the opposite is happening. So that, yeah, there's benefits to it too. And that's why, like, I can only, this is like my personal opinion, but like, I believe in, in the decriminalization of, of sex work. And I think that that needs to happen alongside everything else that mm -hmm. we're saying, because I think as we see over over time that like sex is kind of used as a scapegoat. You know, we we don't regulate like the gun industry. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that there's like complete complete immunity for the gun industry Literally, just like there is for tech. To the gun industry. Like you're not. Right. Like, right. So it's, it's like astonishing. Yeah, so it's like let's let's finally target tech companies, but Let's make sure that we hurt people who are doing sex work. Yeah. Yeah. So That's the way I see it. You know, makes a lot of sense. So the solution is, is like being able to hold, you know, 
apps and websites and like providers liable for third party content while recognizing that the third party content is not a problem if it's legal <laughs> and not criminal. So that, that makes a lot of sense yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what I think it's, it's still like something I think about and talk about every day. And I'm like, so, so many, like there's so many things like that come up, but it's a working conversation. And, and, um, I think the more we do this work, the more we learn. And, and that's why, um, you know, I, I try to meet as many people as I can and, you know, talk to sex workers and, and see like how we can help each other and, and benefit each other. What would you like to see changed? Like, what do you think is kind of the, obviously it's, there's not a single solution that will make everything, but what do you think is something that would be pivotal or just isn't acknowledged? Um, I, I think ultimately what, what it comes down to, you know, I, you know, I've talked about the work that I do with, with victims of sexual assault and stalking and, and revenge porn and all of that. And, and that's my passion. But what this is really about is recognizing, um, how easily technology can be weaponized and, how much power tech companies hold in that weaponization and how Um, much we've just accepted yeah like when people say like oh there's this safety thing or like oh this app from russia is like stealing your identity or like 23 and me will know everything about you me i'm honestly just like oh well they're gonna find it anyway like yeah yeah like accepted that it's like we're i mean totally public facebook like can like basically control elections you know and I just think that it's something that people aren't necessarily awake to all the time, like the way that tech companies influence our lives on a day-to-day basis, but they really do. Um, And that's why I'm so passionate about, you know, Section 230 and changing things, and I talk to all my friends about it, you know, because it's like, I'll tell my friends about the work I do, and they're like, oh, but if they don't take down a naked picture, can't you just sue them? Like, no, well, you can't sue them because of this one law. (laughs) Getting all my friends to, like, say, fuck 230. (laughs) Yeah. I was just talking about 230 earlier today. (laughs) Maybe because I knew we were going to talk. But anyway, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for your vulnerability. Thank you for your strength. Thank you for your ideas. Um, We're so grateful that you took the time to talk to us. Yes, how can people um, consensually follow the work that you're doing um, in a non-stalkery, horrible way? <laughs> yeah, so, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. I'm, I've been a listener for a while, so this is an honor to be here. Um, but yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. It's Norma Buster, exactly how it sounds. Instagram is Norma Buster underscore. And then you can find our firm, CA Goldberg, uh, across all social media. And our website is CA Goldberg Law. And you have a memoir. When can we expect that? Yes. So I'm still working on it. I'm going to be shopping around by the end of the year. That's like my big project for this year. So 
stay tuned for that. Yeah, keep us posted and maybe we could do a giveaway. And if you Ooh. want to follow what we're doing at Sluts and Scholars, uh, you can check out on Instagram, Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars, and feel free to email at slutsandscholars at gmail.com. And if you are a listener and have some money to spend, please uh, join on Patreon to get some extra content. And if you don't have money to spend, please do a free review wherever you listen to your podcasts. <laughs> And in the interim, you can read Nobody's Victim. <laughs>